morning, if you have a Bible with you, would you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? We've been working through this short letter when I have the opportunity, about halfway through chapter 4. This morning I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. We, we looked at verses 9 and the first part of 10 the last time, if you were here. So we'll focus on the end of 10 through 12. But I'll read the whole paragraph so we get the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. If you've listened to Christian teaching for any length of time, you've probably heard a very famous statement. It goes like this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. The implication there is that We can preach the gospel simply by the way that we live. That's frequently attributed to the man named St. Francis of Assisi, but it's lamentable on two accounts. Uh, The first is, my brother Francis probably never said that. Uh, You can't find those words in his writings or any of his followers' writings either. But the more important lament about that statement is that it's just not possible. We cannot preach the gospel, declare the gospel, share the gospel, Apart from words, Paul said in the letter to the Romans, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. If we're going to be gospel people, we must be people who speak words, the words of the gospel. No one can declare the gospel without words. On the other hand, it is possible to deny the gospel without words. Paul told Titus, you can profess to know God, but then deny him by your works. So we must be a people who not only speak gospel truth, but we must be careful to live in such a way that our life backs up the words that we speak. Because what kind of a gospel do we cling to? Think with me, even to the words that we have sung this morning. This is no ordinary kind of truth. This is a life-changing kind of thing that we trust in. We do not look to God as people who are just like everyone else, and God leaves us just like we are, but he, he somehow pours out all of his blessings on people who are just like the way that they are. No, we hold on to a, a message of change, right? We are not the people that we need to be. We are not the people that, that God designed us to be. We have this immense problem that keeps us separated from God. That problem is sin. The gospel that we cling to is a gospel that says, here is Christ to pay for your sin. Here is the Holy Spirit to help you grow out of your sin, in a sense. The message of the gospel is a message of change. God receives us as we are, but then he doesn't leave us where we are. He he makes us into the people that he has called us to be. God gives us certainly the hope of a new eternity, but he also works in us an earthly renovation. We have become a new people. 
a different kind of people. Not just a, a people with a different kind of belief system. We're not just adding facts for our minds to think about, but we have a new, a different kind of life. And this is Paul's concern in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. If you'll remember with me, we looked back at verse 1. Maybe a few months ago, Paul urges the people, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. This is his, his primary concern, to, to remind the people of how they are to live in a way that pleases God. And he's simply reminding them of what he had told them when he was present with the church. If you look back in chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, while we were here, we, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If Christians have this expectation of the kingdom of God and being in the, the glory of God's presence, there is certainly a, a sort of lifestyle while we are still here that is appropriate to that expectation. Church, there is a kind of life that is characteristic to Christianity. If we hold on to a different magnificent sort of faith that the gospel brings to us, then we will live in a different sort of way. Sadly, that's not true of all of God's so-called people throughout the church, and often what the world sees is simply a label on a lapel, but a lifestyle that looks like everyone else around us. In chapter 4, Paul describes this kind of life, this different kind of life with the word sanctification that it is God's plan, God's will for us to be a, a kind of people that are growing in holiness. We're not remaining in our sin, but we are growing to be more like God, more like Christ. The Holy Spirit works in us and then works out of us a lifestyle that is marked by holiness. In verses 3 through 8, he applies that holiness to the issue of sexual immorality. We, we thought about that for uh, a few moments for a while. Holiness is abstaining from sexual immorality. But then in verse 9, Paul points to this topic of love, genuine love, and we see this contrast. Sexual immorality and genuine love do not go together. They are exclusive of one another. If you would demonstrate genuine love, then sexual sin will not be a part of that demonstration. Because God has built into his people what true love is. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that God has poured his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we, like the Thessalonian church, if we have Christ in us, then we have what, an understanding of what true love actually is. We need no one to teach us because God has taught us what it is to love because God has shown us his true love. Today, we're focusing in on verses 10 through 12, and Paul uses some similar words again. We urge you, brothers. Verse 12, so that you might walk properly before outsiders and have no need of anything or be dependent on no one. Now, if you have the New International Version, your words say so that you might win the respect of outsiders. As if Paul is saying, live this way, and if you're like me, you might misunderstand. Maybe no one else has this misunderstanding, but it came to my mind that it, you might get the idea that Paul is saying we live in this way so that we might please the world. But clearly that's not what he is saying because in verse 1 he has told us we are living in order to please God. So our aim is not to please the world, to accommodate the world. Our aim is to persuade the world. 
to live in such a way that our life is a persuasion of our faith. It is a, an evidence of the things that we believe. We aim that our way of life backs up the words of our lips. So the issue we're thinking about this morning is, is about the gospel. What kind of a life is congruent with gospel change? And here we have just some basic concerns for the everyday Christian life. Our lives are to be marked in a way that pleases God, and what pleases God is a life that demonstrates and defends and supports and gives weight to our faith. Paul has connected these ideas with the, the thoughts, the actions of love. In verses 9 and 10, he has commended the church for being a church that has actually practiced genuine love. God had led them and, and worked in them to teach them true love, and this love is working out of them. And Paul says even into the, the surrounding region of Macedonia, that's present-day Greece, this one church had a testimony in all of the, pre- the, the, the region around them for being a church that loved others. They were not concerned only for their local church, but they were, they were demonstrating love to the churches around them all throughout the region. What a testimony that is. And yet, they, it seems that they were open to temptation. There were some in this very church, even this church who was commended for demonstrating love. There were some in the church who were in danger of taking advantage of their brothers and sisters' generosity. They were in danger of living in such a way that didn't demonstrate this genuine work of God in them. So Paul is clarifying for us, what is Christian responsibility? What does an effective faith look like? What does a faith look like that has an effect on this world, that is persuasive to the outside world? I'll be honest with you, it sounds rather ordinary. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. That's very basic down in the dirt. The gospel is good for us, not only to encourage our minds and our hearts, but it speaks to our very living, to the things we do from one day to the next. Here's the good news. You don't have to be a celebrity Christian or a Christian superhero to be an effective Christian. You just aim to live out the very things God has done in you. The gospel is a message of restfulness and reconciliation, and gaining peace with God, and also peace with other people. Words like conflict, and irresponsibility, and lack of consideration for others, depending on others unnecessarily, those things are not parallel to what God has done in us. And our message will have very little power and very little effect on the world around us if those words describe how we live. So we're going to talk about some very basic, basic ideas today. But I hope you will listen, think about the words of Scripture as we listen to four instructions from Paul to the church to keep them on a path of an effective Christian life. And these aren't new instructions for the church. In verse 11, he says, these are the things that we instructed you in. He had already told this to the church. He's just reminding them, stirring up their minds by way of reminder. Remember these things that we've already told you. So number one. Here's his first instruction, love more and more. We see that at the end of verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And that word this relates back to verse 9, concerning brotherly love. Keep going. You have been taught by God to love one another. That's the issue. Do this. Do this love more and more. 
he's encouraging the church to, to keep at this basic fundamental characteristic of the Christian life. Keep on loving. Work at it more and more. Do it more and more. Find ways to advance your practice of love for your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. Church, this is a distinctive quality of God's people. This is the basic thing that God's people should be doing is loving. That is true because think of the basic thing that drives God's work for people like us. Is it not his love? He loved so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Christ demonstrates the love of God for his people by giving up his perfect life on behalf of our sin. Jesus himself said there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You could even think, especially when that man is the sinless son of God. This is the kind of love that God's people are willing and ready to produce, to demonstrate. We thought about this last week as Jeremy preached in Acts chapter 2. We saw the the church in Jerusalem demonstrating this kind of sacrificial love. They were ready to, to give up their own belongings, to sell the things that they have for the sake of the good of others, for others who are in need. Godly love is marked by this sacrificial kind of giving of money, of things, of time, of talents for the good of others in the church. Jeremy pointed out that was the kind of love that marked the church in Jerusalem. But here in 1 Thessalonians, we see as the Christian faith has spread to another region, so has this demonstration of sacrificial love also spread across the world. Now the world at that time seemed much smaller. But that's what's happening. As Christianity has spread, so has this demonstration of love. And so Paul commends the church. You've been known throughout Macedonia for your acts of love. There's a special concern of the church for brothers and sisters in the church. But then beyond that, they were ready and willing to demonstrate love to to churches in in the region that they were located in. And our first aim, even in our local church, is to care for one another, the people that are before us. But but how ready should we be to have open eyes and open ears and open hearts to to give to other brothers and sisters beyond these walls if we hear of such need? Now, for the church at Thessalonica, this demonstration of love was probably an act of financial giving. They probably sent financial support to other churches in need. But there are other ways to express love. And Paul, I think, is addressing that here. There's more than just giving of your finances to to love other people. And so he says, you've, you've loved some, but, but keep at it. That's a, a great thing that you've already done, but, but do it more and more. Abound in it. Figure out ways to expand your expression of love. Grow at it. Do it more and more. And love, as we see in these verses, is, is really the fountain of which all the rest of this passage flows. So we could see the rest of these instructions as a, a way to, to work out this kind of love that Paul has mentioned to the church. So first he says, love more and more. But next he says, aspire to live a quiet life. I read that and I think, how many of us are already on board with that? Wouldn't it be nice to live a quiet life? And yet this is precisely the instruction Paul gives to the church. And it applies to us today. Love the honor of a quiet life. Make it your ambition. Strive to live quietly. I've already mentioned the gospel has this 
reconciling effect, right? This calming and unifying effect. We, we are brought to a restful place because we are resting in Christ. We, we have this expectation of the rest to come. We've sung about that this morning. The gospel is one that brings peace. Inner peace in our hearts, outer peace with the Lord Jesus, with uh, uh, God the Father, and even peace with, with our brothers and sisters. So a ruckus kind of Christian is really a contradiction in terms. He who would cause strife and contention and arguments, whether it's at the church or whether it's with the government or whether it's in your neighborhood or in the workplace or in your home, does not demonstrate the qualities of the Christian life. Those are words that mark the world. If I could return to the book of Proverbs, we could get a lot of help on, on what, what are some kinds of inner patterns of life that, that drive people to living an unquiet kind of life. And so I share these with you as if to say, if we would aim at these root sins, then we could develop the fruit of a quiet life. In Proverbs chapter 1, the same word quiet is used, but it used in the way of being at ease and as wisdom speaks wisdom calls out and says whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease or quiet without dread of disaster the first heart condition that might lead to an unquiet kind of life is living in fear living with dread and here wisdom is speaking about the dread that comes with the consequences of sin the the dread of judgment in the future but i think there's there's an expansion we can have on that to to make the practical uh, application for us you live in fear the the world is living in fear and this just causes turmoil an unsettled heart leads to an unsettled kind of life but remember the words of christ come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest i am gentle and lowly in heart you will find rest for your souls brothers and sisters when we find rest in the gospel we have not only the the hope of eternal rest in the future but surely that has effects on us now that we can live a restful life now because we have no fear of what comes next. Well, there's more that Proverbs has to say and sins of the heart can erupt into this unquiet kind of life. Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. So a quick temper is a strife-developing kind of attitude. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife. Lying and dishonesty does not demonstrate a gospel kind of life that verse also says that a whisperer or a gossip divides close friends proverbs twenty two ten: drive out a scoffer or a complainer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease if you aim at the root of complaining that will bring quietness and peace proverbs twenty eight twenty five: a greedy man stirs up strife Greediness and envy and jealousy is not a quiet kind of life. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. If we would live a quiet kind of life, we would aim away from wrath and anger. If we fast forward to the New Testament, we might apply this in one other way. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses the same word. In chapter 2, verse 2, Or verse 1, he says, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions 
and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, there's that same word, life. So the way that Paul says that we aim for a peaceful and quiet life is is made by praying for those who are kings and who are in high positions. Might I say he does not say that we should be engaged in protests or rioting or agitation of the society around us. Christians are not mixed up with the overthrow of government or society, but we pray for our leaders' conversion. We have a different approach to social problems. Because as God's people rest in the work that God has already done, we also trust him for the work that he will do, both in our hearts and in the hearts of other people, including the leaders of society. As we trust and rest in God's work, we live peacefully, we live quietly. Paul says, aspire to live quietly. But also, number three, he says, mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. If you're reading the ESV, you have that word affairs there, and it's not very specific. The ESV and the New American Standard lean in one direction, giving us the idea that the, what Paul is saying is take care of your business. So, so take care of the matters of your own life. In contemporary terms, we, we tell people, be sure to take care of yourself. That's kind of the idea. If you have the NIV or the Christian Standard Bible, I know some of you read that, you kind of get this other perspective on the other end. Where Paul says in those translations, mind your own business. We know what that means, right? When you were a kid, you said, mind your own beeswax. But I think Paul actually has both ends of the spectrum in view here and everything in between. The words literally say, give attention to your own. Take care of your own things, your own matters, your own business. Worry about the things that apply to you. And let's be honest. If you actually give full and responsible attention to your own physical and emotional and spiritual health, if you care for your spouse and your children, if you have those relatives or other relatives that are dependent on you, if you serve your brothers and sisters in the church in a responsible and connected way, if you're maintaining the physical resources that God has given to you, if you have a house or cars or other property that you need to maintain, if you're managing your budget and your finances responsibly and taking care of uh, the, the things of your money, if you're giving diligence to your job or your business and you're, you're seeking to advance and, and being more skillful at your, your work, if you are keeping up with relationships with your friends and neighbors and extended relatives and you're, you're aiming to, to reach out to the neighbors around you in a, in a responsible and godly kind of way, if you're planning wisely about your family's future and what, what things are going to look like, what do you need to plan for, if you're doing all of that, do you really have time to worry about other people's affairs? If you do, you have more time than I do. But that's kind of what Paul, pretty much what Paul is saying here. Mind your own affairs. Take care of your business. And if you do that, by implication, you're not taking care of other people's affairs. And yet sometimes our sinful hearts make time to take care of other people's affairs, right? If we're not careful. So we need to be reminded, just as Paul is reminding this church, Paul is telling them, make sure you live a, a responsible and considerate life, taking care of your business, not sticking your nose in other people's business. See, the Christian life is about stewardship. That's a good way, a word for all of the Christian life. Because 
whether we like to hear this or not, nothing that we have belongs to us. Nothing. God has graciously given or loaned us the things that we have from our life to our families, uh, relationships to our, our homes and our property. We are certainly stewards over the things that we have. But that ownership is really just a temporary thing. You, in fact, are God's steward or his manager over the things in your realm of life. And it takes attention and effort to manage those things. Now, some of you have 10 talents to manage. Some of you have fewer, maybe five. Some of you only have one. But the responsibility is no different, whether you have 10 or one. We all are called to a responsible stewardship of God's things. And yet our eyes because it's connected to our sinful flesh, wants to, wants to wander to other people's things. We, we sometimes, if we're not careful, want to look upon other people's affairs, know the juicy details about every church member and every neighbor and every friend. And eyes like that turn into critical hearts, sitting in judgment of other people's way of life. And those critical hearts become loose lips. We all know what loose lips do, right? sink ships. If you're too young, you might not know that one. We call this gossip, and not taking care of your own affairs would lead to this sin of gossip, the, the fruit of a heart that wanders about in envy and bitterness and pride, looking at other people's problems or other people's lives. This isn't just for hair salons and grocery store checkout aisles either. The church can be a place where gossip can parade around. Unfortunately, prayer requests can be a prime location for a gossip column. Lots of gossip happens in the church in the name of seeking counsel and advice. So we must be careful and ask the question, why do we want to speak about the things we speak about? Paul is calling all of God's people to mind their own affairs not to shield their eyes to not be concerned about other people, but to make sure that we, first of all, take care of our business, to make sure that our life is responsible and cared for and, and moving in a godly direction. He doesn't mean that we should ignore sinful patterns of life in our fellow brothers' and sisters' lives. That's part of our commitment in the church is to, to, to watch out for one another. If we see sin as a pattern of life, then we are, we are committed to to warning a brother or sister and, and helping them overcome that sin. But what does it really matter what kind of car people drive or how they organize their home or what kind of clothes they wear or how infrequently they mow their lawn? Managing those matters are not really our concern as God's people. And he doesn't mean either that we should ignore people who are in need. Being generous and helpful is a Christian way to demonstrate love, but that doesn't mean managing other people's affairs. Brothers and sisters, we know mercy. We've received great mercy from the Lord. And so when we look out and we see other people, and if we're tempted to have eyes of judgment upon them, we know what mercy is and Certainly we can have merciful judgments towards other people, but Paul's not even saying just be merciful about other people's affairs. He's essentially telling us don't even worry about their affairs. 
Mind your own affairs. Take care of your own matters. Be a responsible steward of God's resources that God has loaned to you. And if you give proper effort and time to those matters, then you'll avoid other people's matters. The question might be, how in the world does this support a gospel testimony? And hopefully that's not a strange question. Certainly it's not a means of grace to inject yourself into other people's business, but there's more to think about here. If we are eager as God's people to mind our own affairs, to be responsible with the stewardship that God gives us, then that is a way to recognize that that you are simply a manager and it's God who is the owner. That you are demonstrating in that care of your affairs that you are thankful to God for entrusting his resources to you. And that you realize in everything God has loaned you this thing, this family, this property, this matter that you have, and you are willing and ready to use it for his glory. So to mind your own affairs is to be ready to use everything that God has given you for his glory. And mismanaged resources are rarely leveraged for the good of others. But God has given you what you have so that you might express love, Christian kind of love, toward brothers and sisters in Christ. The last, number four. Paul has said, love more and more, live quietly, mind your own affairs. Number four is easy to see in the list, to work with your hands. And Paul's not necessarily exalting manual labor here above other types of work, but certainly he is not um, lowering manual labor compared to other types of work. There is no justification, even from this one verse, we can see that manual labor is just as respectable or can be just as honorable as another type of work that wouldn't be considered manual labor. We have no reason to look down on anyone in their work, whether they drive a garbage truck or sit in an office all day. But the emphasis I think that Paul is really making here isn't so much work with your hands as opposed to another type of work. He's, he's really pointing to this, this activity of work. <laughs> I told you already the church was uh, in danger, um, was at least had a few people in the church who, who were taking advantage of other people caring for them. They would rather sit and not work and receive generosity from others rather than working to take care of their own daily needs. It's as if the people were actually able to work and yet they chose not to. So Paul, if I could put it in contemporary terms again, tells them, get a job, stop loafing. Don't take advantage of other people. Because it's true, none of God's children should be content for the long term to to be a burden upon other people. We remember what Jesus said, it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. Paul remembered that, and so wherever he went on his missionary journeys, he was working for his own needs. He told the Ephesian elders, these hands have ministered to my own necessities. We find out that while he was in Corinth, he made tents to supply for his needs. He even told the church at Thessalonica in chapter 2, verse 9, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we, were, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He didn't want to be a burden. He didn't want his, his needs to 
to cause anyone to look down on him at all. So wherever Paul went, even though he preached to them, and even though he said he had the, the privilege to, to charge for his work, he did not. He preached for free, and he made tents to sell for his own needs. And yet, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't receive help. I think it's a bit ironic. In Philippians, you'll read where he thanks the Philippian church for giving, contributing to his needs while he was at Thessalonica. So he's teaching the Thessalonians, you need to work to take care of yourself. Don't be a burden to others. And he's thanking the Philippians for sending him aid as he has needs. But there's a big difference. Paul tells the Philippian church, he was grateful for their gift, for their contribution, but he did not ask for their help. In fact, he confessed to them that he had learned how to deal with living in hunger and in need. And so many times, even the, the help that other people would give to him wasn't enough to take care of the way life used to be for him. And so he was having to figure out how to live in a, in a way that was different than before. How often does that happen to us? You make the same amount of money you did two years ago, but inflation is driving prices up. And so you have to make changes, make adjustments. Paul also is not speaking here against being poor. Sometimes in God's providence, no amount of work will be available. No amount of work will be enough to provide for real need. Paul was one who willingly collected and delivered financial resources to the Jerusalem Christians who he called poor in Romans chapter 15. So he's, he's not here speaking against being in need. He's not speaking about receiving help. He's not speaking about being poor. His command in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a correction to any Christian who would be content to let someone else take care of his needs even when he is able to remedy that situation. Let it never be true that any of us would proclaim the name of Christ and be unwilling to work and let others take care of what we have need of. Now, it's easy in our society to think to work means go get a job, make an application, go work for someone else. But I think the application here is much broader than that because the church at Thessalonica, there wouldn't be many companies to go work for. Paul is telling them, go work with your hands for a reason, that much of what they would have opportunity to do would be production on their own. Very much today, like what we would think of starting your own business, finding a need and a way to, to produce, to make provision for your needs. So Paul might be saying something like this, take up a trade, take up work that produces something tangible. So what he's saying here doesn't mean necessarily go work for someone else just to get some cash to pay for your car note. A farmer might grow crops for money but each of us may have enough space in our backyard to start a little garden, to, to, to grow food that would contribute to our independence as a family. A plumber makes good money. But it might be that you could put your hands to work and clear your own drains in your house to save a bit for your family. And there are lots of moms and wives here that, that don't have outside jobs, but they are certainly workers at home, like Titus says busy caring for their husbands and children. And that fits this instruction also. What Paul is saying, put effort in with your own self, with your own resources to take care of the needs that you have. 
because to demand or rely on the supply of others when you're capable of doing it yourself does not match up with the, the doctrine that we believe. If we go back to the book of Proverbs, we find two characters who have not pleasant names in this regard. One is a sluggard. He works hard at not working. The other is called a leech. He has two daughters. Their names are give, give. Always demanding, but never providing. The New Testament might put this kind of a person just one step above a thief. Where Paul in Ephesians 4 gives very similar counsel. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And those are very strong terms to give to this kind of a person. And I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to be harsh. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It would seem that the people in this church didn't get Paul's instructions the first time when he was present or the second time when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. So now he has to speak very clearly, very bluntly in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look in verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Did you hear that? Paul says this kind of a lifestyle is one that if a brother persists in it, you should keep away from that brother. In verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We didn't give you this kind of an example to follow. In fact, we, we showed you a very different example. We worked. Look in verse 10. He gets more clear. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Those are strong words. Paul says the person who would choose not to work when he's able is one who is not worthy of fellowship. He's one who's not worthy of eating from the gifts of others. In verse 11, he says people like that are not busy at work, but busy bodies. That sounds a little bit like our passage in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he might be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. These are very serious, serious matters. It is not a small thing to be able to work and yet to demand generosity from others. Because the lifestyle of a Christian is not about always getting. It is about giving. Isn't that what Christ modeled for us? He was in the glory of the triune God, and yet he stepped down into this world, taking the, the place of a, a servant, a slave. And his whole life was about giving of himself for the good of people. He gave all the way to death, an undeserved death. And Christ's model is the reason that our perspective on work is different also. Even our work today is not about us. It's not about our personal satisfaction. It's not ultimately about even our enjoyment. We work as we follow the example of Christ, as we follow the example of the Apostle Paul, 
in order to give to others. Yes, it is a right perspective to think about how you can love your boss and your customers and your work. It is a right perspective to think of how you love your family by providing for them through your work. It's the right view of work to think that I have some extra so I can give to others who are in need. The effective Christian life is supremely others-oriented because our Lord Christ was supremely others-oriented. So we have here not the only means to an effective faith, but at least four from the Apostle Paul. Love more and more, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. Now I can't leave this topic without addressing one more hurdle that is a temptation for many. Social media may be one of the biggest hurdles to this kind of lifestyle. As I think about social media, I can see where that kind of activity would be a hurdle to every one of these four points. Social media promotes self over others. It promotes a loud and conflicted pattern of life, not peace and quiet. In fact, the very definition of social media is about getting into other people's affairs And how much time is wasted on social media that could be given to productive work? I don't even think we can measure it. Now, hear me out. I am not prohibiting social media. Many people use social media for many godly and God-glorifying uses. It is possible to do, but not without a lot of self-control and a big plan and a big strategy. I simply want to warn you that might be the easiest way for all of us to be distracted from this kind of effective lifestyle. So beware when you engage in social media. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible comes in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, when Paul speaks of some more practical instructions to ordinary Christians. He sums it up this way, so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We want to live lives that make the gospel of our salvation appealing, pleasing, even beautiful, because it is. Let's pray together. Father, we indeed want to please you with our lives. That's our first concern. That's our main concern, to give you glory, to live in holiness, to live in responsibility, being good stewards of our, the things that you have put on loan to us. And Lord, we also want those actions, that kind of a lifestyle to be effective in the world around us. We indeed want to persuade outsiders. We want to walk properly before the outside world, not so that they are comforted by us or pleased by us, but but so that they would be persuaded that our faith is real and we believe in something that actually works. Father, would you empower even us, Harvest Point Community Church, that we would be a people who who are persuasive, not only with our words, but also with our, our daily living, our walk. Lord, would you make that true for us? 